Merry Christmas. Our passage today for one more time is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. And if you will, would you stand as we all read together from God's Word, His holy, inspired, and authoritative Word. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And we also have for this week an assigned passage behind me, Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercies towards us that you would not leave us in our sin and in slavery, but, Lord, that you would redeem us, that you in the fullness of time would send your Son. Thank you for including us in that. Thank you for the hope that lies before us and the joy that is possible before it uh, because of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Over the past three weeks, we have taken the time to look at the first of three titles in Isaiah 9 that were given to Jesus. They were wonderful counselor, mighty God, and everlasting father. And this week we look at the final title, which is Prince of Peace. And we ask, what is this peace? And how does it fit in and relate to what we just read in Galatians chapter 4, that we have been redeemed and adopted as children of God? Well, peace is a word that's used by a lot of People in different situations. A mother wants a little peace in a hectic, busy schedule of corralling little ones, of making meals, and schooling at home. Americans want peace in the Ukraine because they fear escalation in a conflict that might lead to a nuclear standoff with Russia. Both of those share in common the desire for an end of conflict and stress. And so, is that what is meant by Prince of Peace? An end of some kind of conflict. And if so, what is the conflict? Well, we'll get back to that in a moment. But first, if we go to Galatians chapter 4, Paul says, when the fullness of time had come. And I like that word fullness because it suggests something that is filling up and is already ready to overflow or burst. And Paul says that the time had been filling up. Filling up with what? filling up with every detail of preparation and expectation of the child that was to be born. And what Paul is saying is that the Son of God not only was born of a woman and born under the law, but that he was born at the perfect time. Prior to that point, God had been actively 
at work in history. He had been setting up the incarnation and preparing the way. And in fact, God had so prepared the way that the prophets, Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, had been diligently searching the scriptures to see when the sun would arrive. They knew that the time was filling up. So what did that fullness look like? Why then and not now? Why then and not three centuries earlier or a millennium earlier? Well, when Peter says that the prophets searched the scriptures, that tells us that the scriptures are filled with clues about the specific arrival of the incarnate son. And of course, when you first pick up your Bibles, that's not necessarily what you're thinking. You don't start with Genesis and, and learn of God's creation of the world and his creation of man and man's fall into sin and, and, and think that you're looking at timing hints and clues. But it is right there in Genesis 3 that God drops a hint and says that the seed of the woman, we talked about that last night, Eve, would one day crush the head of the serpent. And that serpent not only represents Satan, but it also represents Satan's claim upon Adam's descendants who are in bondage to death and sin. And so all the way at the start, you learn, well, God will send a Savior, and that naturally causes you to ask when, how long. It will be a descendant of Eve, you know that, at least one generation. And it's future descendants that will be in a conflict and in a war with the seed of the serpent. And the rest of the Bible, as you continue to read, maybe if you clue into that uh, statement in Genesis 3 and start focusing on, well, what, where are the other hints? What are the timing clues? Well, you begin to learn step by step how God is beginning this process of restoration and redemption. And in the days of Noah, God takes this significant step by elevating the inherent worth of mankind. Men and women are not to intentionally kill one another. That was a step. Maybe it seems like a small step or an obvious step, but it was a step. In the days of Moses, God gives his law and says that Israel and their culture and their laws and everything else will be set apart as his special people. That was another step. And then God appoints priests and prophets to intercede for and call his people back from their sin. And David, a man in the position of a king, demonstrates what can happen when the king's heart belongs to the Lord. And we start to see this picture slowly, it's fuzzy at first, developing. And in the midst of all of those progressive steps forward, yet there is this sense Right? That despite all the wondrous blessings, men and women still long for and need more. Because anything less than complete purity and holiness cannot survive in the perfectly righteous presence of God. And so despite all those great steps, there remained this uncrossable chasm between man and God. Now, parallel to God giving the promise of restoration, there was also a series of hints through human history of God beginning to bridge that chasm. So we had the pictures of God restoring his image, restoring what he had originally created, and, and maybe pointing towards what would be that perfect man in Jesus Christ. But we also see this series of, of progressive steps of what it means maybe to redeem 
and to save. He sets apart a nation, like I said, through Abraham for his namesake. Abraham didn't do anything at all to deserve it, but in setting apart a people, God illustrates what? He illustrates first grace in choosing a, a person that didn't deserve that favor. He also illustrates what he will do in later forming the church from both Jew and Gentile, called out from every nation. And when God gives his law to Moses, he instructs Moses to build a tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. Of that tabernacle, God's glory would reside, but it would be separated from everything that was not holy. It was a very visual, tangible, visceral reminder that there was still that chasm between man and God. And only one man, as we've often seen, the high priest could enter into that holy of holies, that most holy of places, and only there, after performing sacrifice for his own sin, could he, during that one day a year, offer atonement for the sacrifices and for the sins of the people. And all of the tabernacle's components, the, the holy of holies, the altar, the sacrifices, the, the candlestick, the bread, everything about it is a picture of, of what God would do later through Jesus on the cross. Now, the people in Moses' time, they didn't think Jesus, that they didn't think this was pointing necessarily to a man in that perfect atonement through Jesus Christ, but it was all a foreshadowing, right? It was all beginning to build that picture for the people. And so we might fairly say that the entire Bible, with all of its events like the call of Abraham and the institutions like the tabernacle or the temple, it is about preparing for the Son of God to become man. So that when he comes... When he comes and we see in him that consummation of everything that came before, the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king, the perfect holy presence of God, the long-awaited Christ, the seed of the woman, the Savior, the Prince of Peace, he is the preeminent message of the Bible. And the one to whom all of those pages of the Old Testament Seemingly separate stories, separate books, all in one accord, lead. And so it makes sense that when Jesus says in John 5, 39, that you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about, does he say that eternal life? No, he says about me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And after the resurrection, Jesus said to the disciples in Luke 24, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And realize that when Jesus says the law of Moses, he's referring to the whole first five books of the Bible that we have. When he uses the term prophets, he is referring to all the major and minor prophetic books that we have including the Isaiah passage that we read at the beginning, right? Isaiah 9. And then when he adds in the Psalms, what do you have? He's, he's essentially said the entire Old Testament is about me and about my work. It is so easy to read the Old Testament and make it about us. We take the stories of Abraham and Moses and David and others and turn them in towards us and make them about how we're supposed to act or not to act, how we're supposed to earn God's blessings. 
But Jesus said that all of these stories pointed forward to himself, to the one who would live a perfect life and die a substitutionary death in our place. And all of the Old Testament events encapsulated in the stories, all the directions by God to build these holy things, to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah, to set up a sacrificial system, all of it was filling the time. That's the point. It was filling up the time, preparing the way. And now the time had arrived. No more need to prepare. So how should we respond to the fact that God so creatively from the beginning, from the fall of Adam and Eve, thoroughly prepared his people for his son? Well, keep in mind how we are warned in Hebrews chapter 2, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. If the time was filling up, and in the fullness of time Jesus came, we have all of those millennia of preparation that was consummated in Jesus Christ. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, they said, Joy, come. They said, He is born. And it was reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The angels have been speaking for so many centuries, haven't they? Every time they spoke, whether it was the commander of the Lord of hosts speaking to Joshua on the way to Jericho, or it was... The angel Gabriel preparing the way for Jesus or anything in between. They always spoke things that were reliable, true. And every transgression of disobedience has received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect this great salvation that was announced by the myriad of angels to the shepherds? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Last night I spoke about all of the fulfilled predictions of Christ, more than 300. All of these signs and wonders that accompany Jesus' earthly ministry. And Hebrews 2 starts with the word therefore, which means that the statement here is a conclusion to what was already said in chapter 1. And there the author explains that God's final revelation had been given in his son, Jesus Christ. And in that chapter we learn that the Son of God is the heir of all things, that he made the world, that he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature that he upholds all things by the word of his power, that he made purification for sins, that he sat down at the right hand of the Father, that he is greater than any angel because angels worship him, and that he is the mighty God. And that is chapter 1. And it's a good summary of what we've been talking about for these last three weeks of the wonderful Counselor and the everlasting Father and the mighty God. And so the word therefore in chapter 2 forms this perfect transition from chapter 1 because of all these things that Jesus is and that God has done because he sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those 
under the law, make them adopted sons and daughters, as Galatians 4 says, because he is the wonderful counselor and everlasting father, a mighty God, and the prince of peace, you cannot afford to ignore who he is and what he has done. So the problem is not a lack of knowledge, is it? It's not even a problem of hearing. What Hebrews says is the problem is paying attention. It's paying attention and not hearing that the message is important enough to do something about it. Jesus himself makes that distinction, Matthew 7, 24, where he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. Rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat against the house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. You see, both types of people here, there's not a distinction per se in their innate intelligence, if you will, or their ability to process information. It's not about whether someone heard the message or someone didn't hear the message. Jesus says both people heard. But only one did it. Only one obeyed. And that was like building the house on the rock. And there may be some of you this morning who have said, yes, I believe there is a God, but I'm not ready to submit to him. And perhaps your husband, your wife, your brother, sister, a good friend is like that. Well, Jesus told a parable in Luke 14 about how people hear but neglect what has been said and he says a man once gave a great banquet and, and invited many and at the time of the banquet he sent a servant to say to those who have been invited come for now everything is ready and they all began to make excuses first said I bought a field I must go and see it second said I've bought five yoke of oxen I have to go examine them Another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I can't come. And they all said, please excuse me, we can't attend. And Jesus describes in this parable what the author of Hebrews means in chapter 2 of neglecting so great a salvation. The banquet is the eternal supper of the Lamb. Can you imagine getting the invitation to the eternal supper of the Lamb and saying, excuse me, I've got to go examine my five yoke of oxen. Got to make sure that I'm doing a, a, a proper job in, in building my bank account. These are all good things, these, these excuses. A piece of land, a, a yoke of oxen, a wife. But what is lost is eternal life. And you've likely heard the gospel. You've even attended church at times. But are you ready for the banquet? Are you making excuses? Are you willing to sacrifice the things that would keep you from the banquet? Even though what you must give up is, in light of eternity, worth nothing. And what is offered in Jesus Christ is everything. 
You see, the issue isn't just that we were born under the law and have become slaves to death and sin. The issue is made worse when we know the truth that God sent the remedy to our problem through his son. And as we said last night, why? Because we couldn't do it. We could not save ourselves, nor could we die for each other. Because at the heart of this conflict is a war that was declared by man against God in the moment that Adam disobeyed the Lord's instructions and chose to exalt himself in God's place. That is the conflict from which we need peace. And that peace is only possible from the Prince of Peace. And that's why the Hebrews 2 passage says that the message was declared first by the Lord. Sin clouded our mind, our understanding. We always think that we can do more than we can, that we're more worthy than we are. The Lord looked into the heart, revealed it to us. It was revealed first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. And God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And as we saw in Galatians 4, that message was communicated throughout history. All to say, pay attention, this is important. Look at how man has not only fallen in Adam, look at what happens as wickedness fills the heart of man all the time, every thought in Noah's time and on. Notice how in those cycles of the judges and other times throughout human history, man's typical response to the covenantal grace of God is to constantly do exactly what Adam did at the beginning, to exalt himself, to think himself worthy, to reject the Lord. Look at what happened during the times of the prophets that ultimately resulted in exile. Every time man continuing to replace in God's place the things of creation, idols made of wood and stone and metal, And God's saying, pay attention. The human heart is deceptive. It will always tell you that you are better than you are, that you can save yourself. You need a Savior. And so when Jesus preached that same message, and he said the time had arrived, the kingdom had come, That the answer was here, the solution for all of those problems, this great war that was in existence between man and God from the beginning. He says, I also gave you this evidence to to give credibility to what I said. In John 10, 38, he says, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And when Jesus claimed to be mighty God and did things that only God could do, he confirmed that identity and consequently the truth of his message. Peter would later say in Acts 2.22 that Jesus was a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. And many of those who later listened to the apostles no doubt said, well, why should we believe these men? What proof do they have? that their message is from God. We didn't see Jesus in person. We didn't see his works. And so God gave them the ability to do many of the things that Jesus did. They healed diseases and blindnesses and those who 
uh, were lame. And if that wasn't confirmation enough, God gave the apostles special gifts of the Holy Spirit. And today, perhaps, we don't see that same volume of signs and wonders that accompanied the first century to authenticate the gospel, but we certainly see the gifts of the Holy Spirit in effect in the church and among his people. At the very least, you see the miracle of changed lives. For those of you who have not yet embraced the gospel, do you not see the supernatural power of that gospel changing the lives of sincere believers? God still unleashes his power to help his people, to change their conditions, to show them his blessings. And so friends, this morning especially, perhaps this Christmas morning, God is saying yet again, pay attention. Pay attention. This is important. He invites you to observe what he has done through his people across the centuries. If you see change, if you see growing compassion and tenderness and mercy, if you see the fruit and gift of the Spirit at work in those who profess Christ, making them stand out as different from the world, then that's evidence that the gospel is real and effective and it's summoning you to pay closer attention to it. So again, the issue is not whether we have God's revelation. We have plenty of it. We have plenty of evidence. It's implied by the fullness of time, and that was 2,000 years ago. And we've had 2,000 years since of evidence. But the thing is, everything was delivered through the prophets, has been delivered and received, and the final and complete word was delivered through the Son, Jesus Christ. It was confirmed. And so the issue really is, given all that's happened since then, in addition, during which the gospel of Christ has conquered nations and changed lives and spread throughout the world, are you neglecting the message in the way that you respond to it and live? Are you becoming hardened to the truth? Are you still at war with God? You need the Prince of Peace. In John 18, 37, Jesus was asked by Pilate, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And I like that correlation of Jesus being a king and Isaiah's title of prince. Jesus, in fact, was the king of kings, but Pilate did not understand that. And what I find interesting about his response to Pilate is the additional statement that he was born for the purpose of bearing witness to the truth. Pilate then responds by asking the wrong question, right? He asks this philosophical question, well, what is truth? But he should have asked instead, what truth? To what are you bearing witness? And I want you to think about what Jesus implied when he said he was born to bear witness to the truth. First, he implies that there is a truth that gives meaning to this world. The world doesn't make or change or shape this truth. And the truth to which Jesus witnessed was the truth, an absolute truth that wasn't some truth for me and a different truth for you. 
try to claim that to our current generation that there is absolute truth and you'll be laughed out of the room, right? And just before this final exchange with Pilate, Pilate had already asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And verse 34 says that Jesus answered him, do you say this of your own accord or did others say that to you? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting and I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. That was the truth for which Jesus was born to tell. He is the king, but his kingdom is not of this world. We were at war with God. Maybe some of you still are. A war that started in Adam. We were condemned to die, but redemption was made. Jesus has told this truth. And he and other witnesses have done their part in bearing witness to that truth that the kingdom had come. The historical, moral, and spiritual reality of God's great salvation has been displayed. God has filled up the time. He prepared the way. And then Jesus came, born under the law, born of a woman, lived a perfect life, died a death that he did not deserve, then rose again from the dead. Any lack of conviction on our part, any neglect of this great salvation is knowing not, owing not to them but to us. And the most important question you will ever have to answer are these. Who is Christ? Why was a child given to us and from what do I need peace? In 1 Corinthians 15.1 we read, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And there's that comment again of holding fast to the message you've received. Don't neglect it. Pay attention. And here's the message. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. I'm passing on to you the most important message. Christ died and go ahead and replace our, my, but it is ours collectively. Christ died for my sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And the message from Galatians, Hebrews, from 1 Corinthians, from John, from Colossians, really the message implied by all of the Old Testament and the whole New Testament is that Christ died for the sins of his people and that was the only solution. That's the gospel. And he rose again. When Paul says that Christ died for sins according to the scriptures, he's referring to that entirety of the Old Testament. It's all there, friends, in the fullness of time. By his birth, by his death, as a substitute in our place, you are able to be forgiven for your sins. But you say it's Christmas, it's not Easter. That is true. But why did the sun come, i.e. Christmas, if not for the fact that the war between you and a holy 
God could only result in peace if he died on your behalf, which is Easter. It's all tied together, and it's all the message you must pay close attention to. It's what gives significance to the entire calendar that we celebrate. And the message isn't philosophical. That's what Pilate wanted to turn it into. It's not psychological or even doctrinal. It isn't a collection of opinions or ideas of men about how things should have happened. The message is reality, and that reality changed the history of the world. Without the incarnation of the Son, without his perfect life and death in your place, the resurrection, you would still be at war with God and he at war with you. Hell would still have you in its death grip and you would be a casualty on the battlefield. So you can't, we can't fool ourselves. God wins this war. Any of you out there think that you might win the war? Against God, you won't. All of Christ's enemies are made a footstool for his feet. All those who die outside of Christ are condemned to an eternity in hell. And on these facts hang everything that makes the gospel the good news. Remove the virgin birth, the incarnation of the Son of God, his perfect life, the substitutionary atonement, the resurrection. We are all still dead in our sins. Game over. And all you'll be left with are some admirable bits of moral teaching, a tragic life marred by delusion and misconceptions about Jesus' importance and his relationship to men and to God, and you'll have nothing worth calling good news. And if those things aren't true, then the witnesses are not just mistaken. As many have said in the past, they would be liars. Shepherds, the wise men, later the disciples, the apostles, Jesus Christ himself. And that means that the Bible is totally untrustworthy, at least the New Testament portion. False witnesses would have had to work together to come up with stories that mesh so perfectly. And if they lied about the gospel, why should they believe, be believed about anything else? Why should we embrace their moral teaching if they falsified what they said about Jesus and his birth and his resurrection? Sometimes we quote the passage by Paul that says, if the resurrection isn't true, then we are all fools most to be pitied. Well, it's worse than that. If the resurrection isn't true, it's not just that we're dead in our sins, it's that we have been living our lives based upon a complete fabrication and a deliberate deception. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 14, we read from Paul, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. You see, that's our hope. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Those are the two choices. Will you be the man who built his house upon the rock? 
for building your house on the rock is this. That just as Jesus was the first fruits in the harvest of the resurrection, and so will those who are asleep in him and those who believe in him. Even as Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me shall live even if he dies. That's the man who builds his house on the rock. The man who builds his house on sand hears these things. Maybe even gives some platitudes. Maybe even gives an empty, say, oh yeah, I believe in God. But doesn't live according to that. Do you believe these things? Will you allow that to change your life? Do you understand the war? And do you understand that the Prince of Peace was not only necessary, not only prepared for by God, but that he came, died for you, rose again, and that that salvation is possible through him and through him alone. You can have hope, but you must respond in faith. That's what Christmas calls you to do. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the fact that you did so creatively, so comprehensively fill up the time, the centuries and the millennia before Christ. I don't know why it took the specific time that it did, except for the fact that it was the perfect time according to your purposes. Perhaps part of it was helping man understand his predicament. Perhaps part of it was having enough preparation that it was so abundantly clear when Jesus came that that the kingdom had arrived. Whatever it was, it was the perfect time. And here we are 2,000 years later looking back and seeing even more so the effects of the kingdom on earth. And what happens when people follow Jesus Christ? And so how can we not respond to that message with faith and boldness? The kind of courage that causes fundamental foundational life changes that causes us to give up the excuses like the oxen and the land and the marriages and all of those things that distract us from fully serving you with all of our hearts and in fact actually end up transforming the land and the oxen and the marriages once we live for you and your kingdom. Lord, may we not on Christmas be so preoccupied with the exchange of gifts or the, the sweetness of the holiday that we forget that Christmas is here because the Prince of Peace was able to bring the end of a war against sin. And that part of Christmas is Easter and the death in our place, but all of that leads to resurrection in eternity. Lord, thank you for all of it. But thank you that it began with your promise and was fulfilled in Jesus on Christmas. In Jesus' name. Amen.